I admire people who can imagine and create things that simply don't exist. People who look at a location and can imagine what will be there rather than what is there. The dreamers, those who see not obstacles, but opportunities, like Michael Dorff. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. This is a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, the obstacles, the doubt, the plan Bs, the awful first jobs, the before the cheering started years. As a young man in New York, law school student, wannabe, and small-time rock band manager Michael Dorff stood on a small piece of land in New York's East Village and imagined a music club that became the Knitting Factory. Long before everyone understood the power of streaming, Michael Dorff understood it in the mid-90s, bringing shows from the Knitting Factory to the world. And then, just as the 2008 financial crisis was kicking in, he did it again, creating City Winery, the first concert venue slash winemaking place in New York. There are now city wineries all over the country. And he's created an annual charity concert at New York's famed Carnegie Hall, celebrating the music of an individual artist. This year's show celebrates the music of Paul McCartney. And that's where we start our conversation. What number show is this at Carnegie Hall this year? Well, we, uh, we're calling it the 18th annual. However, we had two uh, pushed 17th annual with Carly Simon uh, due to the pandemic. So it was scheduled, it was booked, it was on sale. Then the pandemic ha- happened because the first one was March 20, 2020. So right in the, you know, crash of, 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 the, of Corona. And then um, we tried to relaunch it in the spring of 21, but then it came back, you know, viral pandemic mm-hmm. too. So that one didn't work very well. But uh, we came back with with Paul McCartney, and uh, we're almost sold out. And it's super exciting to to know we're going to have a filled Carnegie Hall again, and 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 get this uh, this annual fundraiser going again. I believe I still have the Carly Simon tickets on on the on the refrigerator. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you've done it for many many years now. Is there in terms of process, is there, okay, this is how we do it and just put it in place and we're good to go? Or are there things that still kind of come up from out of the blue that that keep you up a little bit at night? Well, um, I'm always staying up at night, not of my own volition, um, Mm -hmm. due to all the, you know, malarkey, in words of Joe Biden, um, out there that, that I have to deal with. But you know, selling tickets for Carnegie Hall, um, if the show is really good, people love the experience of being in this great room. Um, I mean, I like to say it's the second best venue in New York. And um, it really is a wonderful historic place. And musicians love playing there. And I think the audience loves seeing special shows in that in this storied, you know, epic setting. Um, but you still have to reach people and and connecting with people today is very different than it was when I started the series in 2004. Um, you know, back then, pre kind of social media and marketing in that way and reaching our, our fans, 
you know, I used to take an ad out in the New York Times and, and, you know, I used to spend money on print media and, you know, things to actually get the word out. Now, you know, print is not in our advertising budget. Um, and frankly, regular radio and other ads is not anymore. It's, it's all Google, you know, Facebook marketing um, targeted towards, you know, the, the Paul McCartney fan. And, and we obviously leverage our city winery database and our audience to, to sell tickets. And I mean, we're pretty much sold out uh, already, which is great. But, you know, it does require some work and, um, and, and targeted thinking. You're a guy who's known as someone who creates something that's not there. Created the Knitting Factory in New York, then created City Winery, and then the City Wineries across the country. What was the reality in 2004, or what was the origin of doing the first one at Carnegie Hall? Well, the it, it started when I was on a on a board uh, for something called the Music for Youth Foundation. That was an, an intermediary group that was giving money to music education programs. And after the sort of dot com meets record industry meltdown um, in 2000, 2001, um, the, the annual fundraiser that the organization was doing to, to cover the costs and distribute funds went away. And so um, there was a meeting and I was at the meeting and there was people raising their hand with some ideas. And I suggested, since this is a music industry function, that maybe we should have a music concert and raise money. And everyone was like, what do you think? That's crazy. It's risky. You don't want to do that. And I'm like, guys, we're in the music business. What do you mean we can't put on a show? So I offered a, the group basically a no-lose situation. I wanted to do the music of Joni Mitchell uh, at Carnegie Hall in 2004. And I said, look, it, if it loses money, that's all on me. And if it makes money, it's all going to the organization. So no risk, no, no nothing. But do me a favor, buy a couple tickets, please, everybody. And, and if you have any musicians, send them my way. And, um, and it, it sold out and it started the, the annual sellout, frankly. Um, and then Joni, who was invited to that event, uh, unfortunately, her cat got sick. And it's a long story, but at the last minute, she she couldn't make it. Uh, but she sent. Wasn't there a phone? Didn't she call you and have a whole discussion about her cat? Yeah. Which, under the heading of positions that most of us will never be in. Uh, most of us, I am assuming, will never get the Joni Mitchell call discussing her cat. Just going out on a limb there. Yeah, it, it was a very special phone call. And it was a, you know, here's one of my, you know, favorite musicians in the world calling me an hour and a half before the show uh, to explain herself. And I was so busy that after 20 minutes, I literally <laughs> I was sort of saying, um, Joni Mitchell, my lifelong fan, you know, I just can't believe I, I, I actually got to go now. I got to get to work. <laughs> um, and uh, she, she, um, she did something though. She sent 60 yellow roses that had a tag on each one saying, thank you, for 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 thank you Joni or thank you for performing Joni, um, that obviously the the person at the flower shop wrote out, but still it felt 
like they were handwritten cards from Joni. And I, and she asked me to give them away to everybody on the side of stage that night as people were exiting from their performance. And it's a tradition I've done every year since is give uh, the performer as they exit a yellow rose um, gives me something to do during the show, but also a, just a connection to that first one, which I'll never forget. Now, if I remember correctly, you showed the entrepreneurial spirit early on growing up in Milwaukee by selling broken cookies. Is this story, yes. was it true then? And is it still true? It's even more true now than when I told you. Okay. I'm intrigued how that might happen. I don't know why, but it just, you know, time passes and I've repeated it enough. So these days, like in the era of George Santos and Trump, the more (laughs) you say it, uh, the more truth it becomes. Well, in in that spirit, you could say that you wrote all of Joni Mitchell's songs. (laughs) I know it's it. That's a whole nother topic, which, you know, we don't need to go. I I am always thinking about, uh, truth these days just how do you and 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 i will just say this as an aside i i think the more you do live and more i realize like how privileged i am to be in the live concert business where live performance we actually get to put something on and we're the focal point between the artist and their fan um whether it's nightly at a city winery or on stage at Carnegie, that 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 preciousness of creating something live is actually super authentic. No, you know, ACT, you know, chat, IA is going to recreate that. Right. You know, no, no storytelling is going to actually recreate that. And I think people are beginning to to value more and more that that real, that live, that intimate connection that you get to have with people. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling the preciousness of, of real and truth is more important than ever. I remember you told me once that you were a builder when you were growing up, like you worked on your friend's rec rooms. Yep. Uh, how did this come about? And, and did you come from that members of your family or was this just something that you picked up on your own that you love to do? The, well, the building I've, I've always liked to build and somehow my parents were very supportive of that you know, growing up in the suburbs of Wisconsin, um, I got to see a lot of homes built right around us. I was always fascinated by by the walls and roofs going up on neighboring homes. In fact, we were one of the early homes in a farmer field in Wisconsin that became a suburb and tons of homes around us. So I, I always was fascinated with building. Um, you know, I've done multiple tree houses, which led to then some rec rooms that somehow some neighbor friends sort of naively let me go in with a clipboard and say, <laughs> okay, we'll put paneling here and a drop ceiling here and the wet bar goes here. And and you're how old at this time? I was 15 and 16 and 17. I remember when, you know, 16 and two days, I got my driver's license and immediately you know, I borrowed a van from my dad's business and was picking up, you know, plywood and paneling from the the local place. So I, I, I started right away. Did you and, have to uh, pull uh, pull permits from the town for this or this was uh, off? No, the books? this was let's call this the pre-permit era in Wisconsin, <laughs> um, although I use that same 
concept of no building department when I came to New York, you know, several years later and did our first pass at the knitting factory on Houston Street. I mean, it was, you know, it was very naive. It was very um, maybe uh, uh, the exact opposite of what how I approach the world today. But um, at the time, it was just get in and do it and and see what happens later. Um, I definitely don't take that philosophy anymore. And maybe I'm extra cautious these days between insurance and permitting and and um, and and having licensed people do it just because of all the liability. But, you know, when I think about what I did um, and the fact that these people's homes haven't burned down um, in, in Wisconsin is, is, is a miracle. Um, and, uh, and I'm quite grateful for that. Well, you know, all joking aside, it's not that many years between you say you're doing it like 16, 17. It's, it's, I think less than a decade before you're opening Knitting Factory in New York. I mean, when you're opening Knitting Factory, is there some notion of, uh, actually, I, I, I know something about this. I know how this should go and that will that, that help you in the process. Yeah, I, I, it was, first of all, I think it was even, you know, I, I was building rec rooms with my friend Lewis until 18 or 19 years old, you know, uh, into the summer of college and then you know, when I was 23, 24, opened um, the knitting factory. I called Lewis, you know, when I found the location on, on Houston Street, I called him right away and just said, hey, I, I need help building, you know, uh, the knitting factory. And he came out and we sheetrocked and did, you know, the sanding of the floors. And I mean, we did all the work. I hired an electrician. I hired a plumber. Um, but these were names I got couple from Hilly Crystal over at CBGB's and a couple from the neighborhood. And um, again, we just, we went in and just built um, to, and, and tried to make a, a venue as good as possible. Um, then as, you know, we, we kept the original one under 75, which was the legal occupancy before you needed to get a public assembly or sprinklers in New York. I'd gotten that bit of advice. Um, but then when we expanded and took over Estella's Peruvian below us and, 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 and finally got our full liquor license, that's when we hired our first architect and outside you know, person to get us building permits. And I guess a year into it is when we really started to take it a, a lot more seriously on our, on our building um, application. But if people you know, might remember the sweater ceiling we had, um, at the old knitting factory. I mean, that was, you know, a fire trap. And we were told, you know, you got to fire retard it. And so I got this chemical, you know, God knows we should have all been wearing masks then. Um, yeah. And we fire retarded the, the, the sweaters on the ceiling with this, this thing that dripped for a day onto the floor. <laughs> and it was disgusting. But you could take a, a lighter to, to it and it wouldn't catch on fire, which is exactly what the you know, fire department did when they came in. And I had to, to prove it to a fire chief with a lighter that it wouldn't catch fire. And, and that was really how we were able to open. Who was the person in the business who gave you the suggestion, if you hire bands, hire a band that knows something about plumbing? 
That was Hilly Crystal, yeah, at CBGB's. And the thought being? Well, um, there's always something going wrong with plumbing. In fact, I wish I kept that that sort of axiom in my pocket. Last week in City Winery in Philly, we had a pipe burst. And had we had a local musician to call to come and help fix it, instead we had to pay some union plumber like $8,000, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's helpful when, you know, someone cares about what you do and knows that in an hour work of replacing a pipe or, a, you know, a, a faucet, what have you, you don't need to be charged $8,000. Um, and maybe it's for a gig or maybe it's for, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollar credit at the bar. Yeah, and we'll come do the work and we'll we'll throw you on. We'll, you know, you'll be the opening act tonight. It's yeah. Unusual combination, but it'll work. Uh, before old, old school. Old school. I, I do like trading. I like old school. It's it's kind of a fun way to go. Before that, you go to Washington University in St. Louis and then you come to New York. And the expectation is and especially the expectation with your parents is what? Well, they were hoping I was going to uh, sort of formally transfer to law school in New York. And uh, when I didn't officially get in my second year as a transfer student, um, I just started the record company for the band I was managing. And then um, that wasn't successful either. And I convinced them I got to do this, this, this club idea. And they came out and they saw, you know, how, how at the time they thought expensive by Wisconsin standards, $1,800 a month was for 2,000 square feet. And you know, literally my mom was crying. I um, Wait, Was the club, they come out after the club opens or before? No, they were, they were seeing it before I opened and while Lewis and I were doing construction. But I was, I had already moved into the back and, uh, you know, I joined Pineapple Fitness around the corner to go shower and and clean up. And, you know, I was, I was really hand to mouth and this was not what, you know, my proud parents from Wisconsin were expecting to see of their sort of, sort of homeless, you know, son who is now a college uh, law school dropout trying to get into the music business in New York. Did you ever have to have the conversation or just have the conversation with them? I'm, hey, I'm, I'm going for this. I'm going to try this. You know, you got to understand. You know, I never even had to use the words you got to understand. I, my, my parents have always been tremendously supportive, um, you know, while and, and I think they really um, they never said we're disappointed or, we're you know, they expressed some concern, um, but they they know you got to you got to love what you do. Um, and, and, uh, I, I try and espouse that philosophy whenever I'm talking to school, you know, men, young kids, what have you about what to do. You, you, ultimately, if you have the, the ability to explore the world and then figure out something that you love and you happen to be able to earn a living doing it, there's no better time on this planet. So when you're there and you're living there in the knitting factory and you're answering the door in the morning when the Con Ed guy shows up, is there some sense of like, you know, what am I doing? Or is there a sense of, 
wow, this is so cool. I have a club in New York. This is the New York lifestyle. I'm taking my showers at the, the sports club down the street. You know, I, I, at the time, you know, being 23, 25, 26, 20, you know, before getting married, before having kids um, and and kind of staying up late and having your own bar and meeting some of your idols, um, it was a a very, very heady time. And I wasn't, you know, I, I just, I was going down the rapids with my feet first and just enjoying, you know, the experience. Um, I wish I could remember more of it. I mean, it's why I wrote a book because I was trying to, you know, write some of these stories down and pull some some nuggets out of it because it there was so much going on um, I don't think I appreciated everything that was was happening at the time. Um, once you know, once we moved into Tribeca in '94, and and I I had kids, uh, started having kids, and thinking a little more professionally about you know what to do and how to earn money responsibly and take outside investors as well, and and in turn um, have some some fiscal responsibility to them. Um, you know, things changed a little bit. Um, and, and I think I slowed, I tried to slow down at least methodically around business decision-making, um, not necessarily have I slowed down really at all in terms of doing stuff, but, um, try to be more responsible. Is there a moment or an event or a, a show early on at Knitting Factory where it kind of dawns on you, Hey, it's working. You know, I, I, I had this idea, we worked hard to do this, and now we've got a place that people know about and people are coming to, not just from New York, but from outside yeah. of New York as well. Well, there were, I mean, so many great shows, but to, to address that, um, we once had a funny night where Sonic Youth was performing, which was um, special for us. Mm-hmm. And we had a busload of Japanese tourists show up <laughs> who had been hearing about the new jazz club in New York City. And they were all excited to be coming to the new best new jazz club in New York City. And I was happened to be at the box office and we were sold pretty well. I mean, Sonic Youth was was doing giving doing us a solid by performing, but we always have a little more room. And so like 50, you know, Japanese tourists literally walk in from downstairs and, and, you know, and I of course was really infatuated with uh, a Japanese business. They were buying a lot of our records. We were licensing some, I was actually studying a little Japanese at the time. Nihongo Benkyo Shimas, Dema Muzukashi Desne. And and John Zorn was really into, you know, and a lot of musicians were were earning some real good dollars in Japan. So some press had come out about city about the knitting factory and how cool we were. So they come in and, and they they kind of were saying, you know, so jazz desne, you know, is this jazz? And it was Sonic Youth, it was pretty loud and pretty, you know, <laughs> aggressive. And I was like, well. I wish I could explain it, speak better Japanese, but you could call it jazz. I mean, what really is jazz? And so, you know, they all go in, 
crowded, packed. And slowly, one by one, they they start coming back down the stairs. You know, like you know, <laughs> this, is not, this is not jazz. This is not jazz. And about three or four people though stayed, and they really thought it was the greatest show they've ever seen. You know, yeah. highly Im- improvised. You know, Lee Ronaldo doing some stuff that blew them away on guitar. Like it was really special um, for them. And so, I, I I actually remember looking back at that night one how cool was it that you know our brand was now reaching people music fans in japan and they were coming to visit us but the fact that um we actually were turning some people on to something that maybe they would have never heard otherwise and and um you know it's okay even if there's 30 people who didn't love it five did and and that can be success and hopefully all, all, all of them are still talking about it. Yeah. Um, the notion of streaming something live now is, you know, it's just part of the vocabulary for everybody, but you were there pretty early on. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the yeah. leap into that and, and where does that come from? And what yeah. year was it? Well, in, in 93. Wow, so, that's so, it's like so almost we before were, electricity. We were playing with modems that were 4,800 baud. Um, most people don't even remember that phase. I mean, that was dial up, but it was really slow dial up. Um, and I had heard about, and no one was calling it streaming, not, you know, it was webcasting, but even that wasn't really in vogue yet. It was just video, you know, on this, on a computer, the internet was still in mosaic as the first operating system. So it was, this was very primitive, but I had heard about a machine and I called it a machine that would take video in and put it out on, on what is, you know, the coming internet. And it was called the Zing machine, X I I N G. And it was a, a, a box um, that I finally got the name of the guy and I called him and got to him and said, and you know, this is not, you're sending, you're not sending an email. You'd either send a fax or a phone call and you go, I need your Zing machine. And he's like, sorry, dude, you know, I, I can't make them fast enough. I'm selling them like crazy. And I go, well, I, I know no one who has it. He goes, do you know anyone in the porno industry? And I'm like, uh, no. And he goes, well, I can't make them enough, fast enough for the porno industry. This is, it's a hot cake and I'm getting $3,000 in cash. So, you know, unless you can beat that, I, I, I can't make them fast enough. And I, I was so obsessed with the idea that we could take a show in our small room in New York and get it out to the world, even if it was herky jerky pictures yeah. that I told him, listen, come by Sunday night and I'll have $3,500 for you. Now, $3,500 in cash was about my weekend's, you know, toll, you know, take at the bars then. And I had to wait to Sunday because I needed a good Friday and a good Saturday night to have enough cash to do this. But that's how obsessed I was. It was, it didn't make business sense, but I had to have this machine. And I got one and he came in and I plugged it in and and it was one or two frames a second. So it was not video. It was like maybe a slideshow of some stuff. And the music and the sound was even worse. 
but it was something. And then Rob Glazer, I don't know if that's the name you heard. He started um, Real Networks, but uh, which became the the video encoding streaming in the mid '90s. But um, his first company was called Progressive Networks, and he reached out to me when I started conceiving of the Mac Fest in 1994, the first Macintosh Music Festival, and that was going to be a digital first digital music festival in New York. And, and I was using the Zing machine from city, from the knit knitting factory. And Rob came to me and said, I, I need to replace the machine you're using with one of mine. I really, this is the business I'm going into. I said, dude, I spent, I spent $3,500 in cash, you know, and it works. He's like, I'll give it to you for free. Just use mine. I'll sponsor the festival, which he did. And then the festival at that point, in a year, it had gone from 4,800 baud to 19, uh, 1,908, you know, so still not even ISDN speeds. And then the second year of the festival, we finally got to ISDN. And by year three, it was now the Intel Music Festival. And we already had some T1 lines. But, you know, the 90s from like 97, 98, 99, every year it was going to be a billion homes with, you know, fat internet pipe. And, you know, we we're all going to get it in that. That was part of the cause of the of the collapse and the dot com boom was this over expectation by all of us that we'd have faster internet speed and every wired everywhere and it took forever. But the progression, I mean, this is such Moore's law, right? It went, it just exponentially increased in speed, both the mm -hmm. processing of the computers, which is Moore's law, but the bandwidth and how it was reaching people just increased every six months and hmm. and it was incredible but obviously a very powerful tool we're all using we're recording this you know using the internet and and we've how many zooms have you been on already today i mean it's mind-boggling to, to think about how far we've come so uh during those years uh knitting factory is happening it's established in new york it's obviously established beyond new york and you're starting to get some attention for it uh how did that play back home was there a time where your folks kind of came around to, we see what you've done and congratulations? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're fishing for my classic story that you seem to love. But yes, I, I, uh, when they, they, they were always proud of me. But when I got a big article in the Milwaukee Jewish Chronicle, um, then and everybody was calling them going, we saw your son in the Chronicle. <laughs> whatever. That's when they they were really... Uh, they're like, all right, you know, he's made it. Um, but my dad always, I would say my mom always proud. My dad always understood that getting press was not making it. Making some money to pay the bills was truly making it. And and he always said, you know, if I if I had a nickel for every time I saw your name in the press, you know, I'd have enough money to retire. You know, so he 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 understood that, you know, getting good media is great and wonderful and and but um, in the end, you have to have a real, real um, business model. And I think he constantly was my reminder, you know, f of the business thinking, you know, when I started um, City Winery, you know, I and, and, and I say this a lot these days is like I, I think in Excel first and then I build a plan out in Word or PowerPoint or what have you. But it needs to pencil out on a spreadsheet 
and actually hopefully have a real bottom line. In fact, I might have gone overboard these days in my my nickname in the office is is Ebedorf, um, you know, which is coming from EBITDA, which is a, you know, accounting definition for earnings before interest taxes and depreciation and amortization, which I can't believe even comes out of my mouth. But it's, you know, it's about a bottom line and making sure that the business does make sense. And, and, and my dad always taught me that and said, don't believe the press, just make some business. Did he teach that to you early on, long before Knitting Factory? Is that something that's spoken or unspoken in your house? Um, I think it's both. I, I think he will, he spent, a, he was my board of directors for the first eight years before I actually had a board of directors. And right. so that was, it was spoken. But I think more than making money, ultimately, you know, again, I think both my parents and I think all good parents really supportive of just making sure that I'm doing something that makes me happy. Um, Not that they're writing a check or they're supporting, but but, you know, make sure you're you're going to do well with something if you're happy. And in my particular case, they knew I had a DNA that could sell stuff and and make money. Um, and so, you know, that I think, don't think they were ever worried about that. Um, I think it was just making sure that I'm on the path, doing it morally correct um, and doing it uh, with something that I'm going to enjoy. So when you open up City Winery in New York, is there a sense of, uh, all right, I've done this before. And so I, I, I come to it with kind of a base of knowledge or is it a completely new ball game? Also, this is an and, um, or and and yes. Um, yeah. You know the the chance to do a second business uh, and do it again, do another one again, is a real, real privilege and blessing. You know, I I had a window of about four years between the knitting factory and City Winery. Um, I had some good time to really think about um, what I'm, what I want to do, what what the business is going to be about, um, and how how I want to do it differently. And one of the most important things, besides the model itself, was to have a really great team. Um, I knew I needed to, um, you know, I, I needed to create a business that, if I got hit by the proverbial bus. Um, could work without me and have a culture that was um, feeling like there's a lot of little owners throughout the whole business model. Um, year one of City Winery, I started a company offsite uh, called Basecamp, uh, which was, uh, uh, I didn't want to call it a retreat because retreat was a word that was, to me, doesn't make sense. It's going backwards. And I'm going forwards, and and I love base camp, both because I I spend a lot of time in the outdoors and mountain climbing. But base camp is a place where you can look at the the peak that you want to accomplish. You want to get to the top of the mountain, and how do you get there safely? And how do you do it with the team members from a place of safety, which is base camp? And and uh, so base camp became the metaphor in the name of the annual offsite we do. And it's really about making sure the team 
all looks at the same North star together that we have a plan. We are talking about the year ahead and how we're going to get to the top of the mountain. And, um, the, so team building was something I didn't ever really think about in culture at the knitting factory, which I'm obsessed with here at city winery. Now you didn't get hit by a bus early on at city winery, but the economy did. And so I've been in several car accidents in terms of the, you know, I mean, it's amazing between opening in the 2008 crisis and then dealing with the pandemic, you know, this is stuff no one plans for. But when you, exactly, when you're opening and all of a sudden the economy is going down the tubes in the country, or I would imagine there are some long nights, even with all the experience that you've had at that point. True? Yes. I mean, I think in 2008, you know, I, I, I'm, I was one of, of 43 investors um, in City Winery New York. And so I was responsible for a lot of people's money on a startup idea. And most people would hand me a check and say, you know, I like the idea, but I, I trust you and here you go. And so it, I felt a certain real bit of responsibility. Um, and I also, you know, in picking that first location on Varick Street and this model of making wine in Manhattan hadn't been done before um, and a big space with a big rent, you know, there was a lot on the line and, and it was one of those things where I was, I made the decision either big, you know, go big or go home on, on doing city winery because it was so much bigger and more intense than, than, than the knitting factory. And so, yeah, I was, I was not sleeping that great. Um, uh, but we persevered you know, the model is strong. We, the idea of, of combining a, a, a luxury concert environment with a wine making vibe and atmosphere and the authenticity of actually making wine and then recognizing that the margins of selling wine by the glass um, could actually be beneficial, you know, by being a combination winery and concert hall turned out to be a, a, a really good model. I'm curious what those early years, much earlier years before the start of City Winery, do those earlier years have an, a, an effect, an impact on the work that you do right now? You know, you, you always try and not make the same mistakes. And so um, I, I, I do look back a lot and, and think about, you know, how would I have approached this particular issue you know, with my 30 year old head or 40 year old head, sad to say, you know, now 60 year old head, um, I certainly want to be and try to be super more empathetic um, and, and think about the perception of all the people who are listening, whether they're just a fly in the wall or participating in, in a decision making to help them through the process. Um, for themselves uh, and, and, and not just to get buy-in, but to, you know, sort of be a, a mentor for, for a bunch of people. And that was something very different, um, you know, than, than ever before. Um, but yeah, I, I, I keep, you know, coming into the, into the office or into, and go like, how did I get here? You know, I, I've been putting on shows for 
in New York for 36 years. Like, oh my God, am I as old as Hilly Crystal was? Shit, I'm older, you know, and, 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 uh, and I'm, you know, and I, but I feel really, you know, young and, you know, like I, I'm still a punk and I'm just getting started and have a lot more to do here. So, um, no, I mentally, I'm, you know, there are days I, I just feel like I'm, I'm still the young pisher, you know, doing this. And then there are other days I, I, I'm the oldest guy in the room. I can't believe it. Young pisher is an old uh, show business term, correct? Yeah. There's a whole bunch of, of Yiddish I always play with like, Right here, I got, um, <laughs> this is my my new, you know, a bit of Yiddish I'm trying to learn. All right, um, and so for the podcast audience, I'm going to say it says, Der Mensch tracht und Gott lacht, something like that. Yeah. It means, yeah, man plans and God laughs. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of has been the story of the last bunch of years, right? I mean, you know, we were, 2019, we were sailing fast. And boom, the pandemic, you know, hit us. And, and you think you're, you, you, you get through something and boom, you know, life hands you a curveball. And so um, you got to, got to learn to roll with the punches. I like when you say, you know, you're still young, still a punk, but I, I would imagine no longer have to sleep at the club and take a shower at the gym down the street. Um, no. Uh, that is true. I okay. am more comfortable than I should be. No, that's, no, that's not, there are no shoulds. No shoulds. And you know what? That whole story of sleeping at the club and taking the shower down at the gym, we all have done it in some form yeah. or fashion. And that's part of the New York story. All, I mean, it's fun, but all kidding aside, that is part of the New York story. And if you want to come here and you want to do something, you're better be prepared to have to do something like that. I think if you love what you do, you know, you don't you don't feel the pain in that at all. And it's just part of it. And that's the passion that you're right. Many people in New York have. Michael Dorf. He's the creator of the annual concert for music education programs benefiting underserved youth. This year's show on March 15th at Carnegie Hall features the music of Paul McCartney. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm excited about the upcoming episodes, including interviews with chef and writer Gabrielle Hamilton, CBS News anchor and correspondent Michelle Miller, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, personal finance advocate Gene Chatsky, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence, Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.